0: Hi, my name is Josh Schlingel, and in this session we're going to talk about the ideology behind radical Islam. And uh, it's the reality today that Islam is ever on the consciousness of people all around the world. Uh, we're inundated by national news and shocking stories of seemingly random beheadings and kidnappings, car bombings, uh, American soldiers and others around the world are fighting a war on terror in Islamic nations and we're targeted by Muslim liquid bombers on international flights. The Pope has even been threatened by Muslims over controversial statements he has made about their faith. Even our entertainment industry is uh, in the last years has produced such films as United uh, 93 and recently The Kingdom and yet another, me- uh, another reminder of Islamic terrorism. Even if we tried, it seems, that we could not ignore the resurgence of Islam in our world today. Since the days following 9-11, questions such as why do they hate us and is Islam a religion of peace have remained on the forefront of people's minds around the world. Uh, Especially in the West, people have wrestled with these questions, whereas many times in the East, the church has been persecuted and understands many of these ideas, but they're not really sure wrestling with what is true Islam and what is false Islam and so on. And so there's a wrestling for identity. Many books and articles have been uh, emerged in order to clarify and address these questions, but we're hard pressed to find consistent answers to our questions about Islam. Is Islam truly a religion of peace? Uh, This is often claimed by moderate Muslims on the evening news. Uh, Has Islam truly been hijacked by radicals who misrepresent their religious traditions? In the time that I have, I'd like to help answer some of these questions. But I'll begin by telling uh, you this, that after studying uh, Islam, the Islamic sources, the first really 300 years of Islam, which which is my area of expertise, over the past 21 years, if I were a Muslim today, striving to literally follow the teachings of their prophet Muhammad, I would be a radical Muslim. If we are trying to really understand these questions, I don't think we should write off the radical Muslims, the Osama bin Laden, uh, uh, the Osama bin Ladens of the world as lunatics. I've been in the, in the most radical mosques in the world and have uh, had fantastic conversations with radical Muslims and jihadists. Uh, 99% of those conversations were just amazing and uh, I really love them, I love their zeal, uh, though I don't uh, appreciate their philosophy and theology and motivation in that sense behind it. Some of the most inspiring teachings I have read have been authored by radical Muslims like Sayyid Kutb, Maududi, Abdul Azam, and others. Their zeal for faith and challenges, uh, their faith uh, challenges me to be zealous for my own faith in Christianity. The radicals are not lunatics. They are rationally acting in accordance to their faith and beliefs. My students have read uh, some of Osama bin Laden's letters and are shocked to find that even as evangelical Christians, they agree with much, sometimes 50, 60, 70% of what they're writing about. Osama talks about how the West is destroying itself from within, how many of the evangelicals are concerned about materialism, sexual promiscuity, abuse of women, slaughtering of innocent people globally, and the destruction of the environment. Well, these are the very issues that Osama bin Laden addresses in his letters uh, to us and to the West. I find his insights in his communiques fascinating and I will not demonize his passion and zeal for these kinds of issues. So I agree with him to an extent, but it is the remainder of his teachings that I disagree with. The mandates of violence and the solution to the so-called West's demise. What we want to do is remove the veil of Islam so that you can uh, know why the radical Muslims, the Osama bin Laden, uh, Zarqawis, Zawahiri's and others are engaging in these radical activities. I want to take the mystery out so that there's no longer a shroud of fear surrounding Islam. First, I will address the historical understanding of violence and jihad within the early authoritative Orthodox Islamic sources. We'll do this in a much more thorough way in my course, Christian Apologetics to Islam, in the next course. But here, we'll look at the contemporary interpretations and the outworkings of those Orthodox teachings in this discussion let's tackle one of the most frequently asked questions, is Islam a religion of peace? When we look at the teachings of Islam and at Muhammad, their prophet, we see that uh, he and the first Muslim set in motions a series of events which have had escalating repercussions for us today. And what we realize is that modern extremists have not hijacked an ancient peaceful faith. To get to the heart of whether Islam is a religion of peace, we have to first make a distinction between the religion of Islam and the Muslim people. Islam is a fixed set of teachings which originated 1400 years ago. However, the Muslim people are as different as there are people in this world. Some may be uh, radical or violent and some may not and may be very peaceful. There are 1.57 billion Muslims throughout the world today, many whom are moderate or even nominal in their faith. Some are called folk Muslims and so on. There are courses on those uh, Muslim peoples throughout the rest of the training you'll receive. Many are hardworking people of honor and are honorable citizens uh, of Eastern and Western nations who strong, have strong family values. These individuals would decry horrific acts of terrorists or extremists, but the truth be told, that many of them have also never read the entirety of the Quran or the sacred Islamic teachings of the Hadith, the tafsir, the Sirah, and other kinds of Islamic writings. But in, in investigating this question of is, is Islam and p, is it peaceful, we must first look at the founder centrally, Muhammad. How did Muhammad model for us the Islamic faith? Well, he was born in Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. There he began his uh, prophetic career uh, in 610 A.D., receiving revelations from the angel Gabriel, which would ultimately be compiled into the Quran in 634 A.D., two years after his death. Muhammad's prophetic career lasted for 23 years. He received these revelations. And at the beginning, he enjoyed support of his fellow tribesmen in Mecca, His religious teachings were very much one of peace and unity in those uh, first uh, 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 11 or 12 years. However, around 622 AD, Muhammad lost the support of many of his fellow uh, pagan tribesmen as they began to be angered by his message against paganism. He taught that there was only one God, Allah, and that he was his prophet. Muhammad was his prophet. Muhammad temporarily yielded to temptation to allow the pagan gods a place in his religion, but when he reverted back to his original monotheistic message, his followers and pe- pagan tribesmen clashed in hostility. It was when he lost the support in his hometown that Muhammad, uh, Muhammad's religion turned violent. He and his band of followers, maybe 100 or so Muslims at the time, hijrad or migrated, moved to another city in the Arab Arab peninsula up to the north uh, to a city called Medina. There he grew stronger in his alliances and began to establish a political community called the Ummah. It was then that the Muslims began to fight every tribe that opposed Muhammad's quest for political power or anyone who would not convert to his religion. The career of the Prophet Muhammad was an especially aggressive one, during the last nine years of his life especially. One scholar, uh, uh, Dr. Richard Bailey, explains that within the Quran, one can find four stages to Muhammad's fighting campaigns. Stage number one is when Muhammad lived in Mecca. There was no retaliation when he had a, a few followers uh, with a very little military and political clout. Stage two is a later period in Mecca where defensive fighting is permitted. In stage three, Muhammad has moved to Medina. He's migrated or hijred up to Medina. And at this time, uh, had defensive fighting is commanded and it was obligatory upon his followers. Anybody attacking him, they could respond. And finally, at stage four, Is later in Medina, once Muhammad was strong both politically, he united the Jewish tribes that were there. Um, uh, uh, At this time, uh, he was able to begin a militarily offensive fighting, which is commanded against the pagan tribes and those throughout uh, the region. At this time, an all out offensive is launched in that stage four to invade and force converts to Islam, which really uh, extends throughout the world beyond Muhammad's death. Uh, He orders Abu Bakr and Khalid was ordered by Abu Bakr, the Emir, the Muslims, the Osama bin Laden in the first century, to conquest the Syria and up into the, the, the northern Christian nations. Now, the following are chronic references justifying uh, an offensive battle. For example, do these sound peaceful to you? In Surah nine, verse five in the Quran it reads, then fight them and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them, beleaguer them and lie in wait for them with every stratagem of war. So this verse allows the Muslims to compel non-Muslims to accept Islam. However, it is also abrogated or replaced by the condition in the verse which follows. Quote, but if they repent and establish regular prayers and practice regular charity, then open a way for them. So the opinion here is to convert or be killed. In Surah 9.29, we read uh, this verse. It says, fight against those who one, believe not in the law, or two, nor in the last days, nor forbid that which has been forbidden by Allah and his messenger, and those who acknowledge not the religion of truth, Islam, among the people of the scriptures, the Jews and the Christians. Now, that's not a very peaceful verse either. However, the verse that follows here all allows for their protection from death if, quote, they pay the jizya tax, uh, the poll tax or a tax that's placed upon Christians, and feel themselves subdued and humiliated, end quote. So the options between verse, verses 9:5 and Surah 929 are to convert to Islam or pay a tax being designated as a second-class citizen, or be killed. Then there's Surah 47Iiah4. So when you meet in, uh, in fight and jihad in Allah's cause, those who disbelieve smite their necks, strike off their necks until you've killed and wounded many of them." end quote. So these are just a few of the 149, some scholars say up to 164, what are called sword verses that are found in the Quran. Though there are many peaceful verses in the Quran, these verses have been replaced or or abrogated by the much more violent verses because the violent uh, verses were revealed to Muhammad after the peace verses, and so the peace verses have been abrogated or replaced by the new commands to fight in the way of God. So we can understand this law of abrogation uh, because we uh, look at the teachings of the New Testament and how they relate to uh, certain Old Testament laws and so on that are replaced by the law of grace in the new covenant in Christ's blood in the New Testament. So today we live in the New Testament, not the law of the old. However, the doctrine of abrogation is a very kind of complex one in Islam and we do not have the time to enter in a full discussion about that, but there are many disagreements that go on about Islam, but the main foundations of Islam and the violence that exists is throughout the biography of Muhammad <laughs> and uh, throughout, uh, throughout the Quran. The primary way of understanding uh, Islam is not so much by reading the Quran. I would say the best way to understand what Islam is is by actually reading the biography of Muhammad. And we'll go into that in later, uh, in later uh, uh, studies on the biography and the life of Muhammad. The violence found in these verses is justified within Islam because of very important doctrine uh, or reality of the Khilafah or the Islamic State. The early Muslims believed that Allah, their God, commanded them to establish an Islamic Khilafah, which is, in essence, an Islamic theocratic state on the earth. Now, as Christians, we believe in a heavenly kingdom, which Jesus Christ came to establish. However, Islam teaches that Muslims will rule an earthly kingdom. Islam is to rule and reign as the predominant faith and political system globally. And so the Khilafah, the early uh, kingdom, uh, the earthly kingdom by which Islam rules is established and is established through earthly means of fighting with religious significance and this is jihad fighting with religious significance according to dr david cook one of the leading scholars on islam, on uh, on radical islam and in jihad another key point here is that the prophet of islam muhammad was to be the example of faithfulness for all mankind his life and practices are captured in the Sirah, or the biography of Muhammad. And from the Sirah, Islamic theology derives the Sunnah, really from the Hadith or the sayings what Muhammad said, did, or gave his tacit approval to, which I'll explain in later lectures on the Islamic sources in the Christian Apologetics to Islam course. Now, according to the Sirah and Islamic traditions, Muhammad personally participated in 27 battles and assisted or oversaw 59 others. Uh, Dr. David Cook lists some 84 battles that he counts up within the biography. And so this was in Muhammad's quest to establish the Khilafah of the Islamic State. Now this is an average of no fewer than nine battle campaigns annually over the last 10 years of his life. And it's important to note that these battles were not by any means defensive battles as many, moderate muslims will suggest most of them according to dr cook were unprovoked raiding campaigns muhammad was a warrior prophet who gave his opponents the option to convert to islam to be reduced to a second class citizen called a dima or a zima uh, uh, under his rule or to be killed and so those were the three options now the Battle of Badr was one of the most important of Muhammad's battles. There, uh, Muhammad's armies uh, were vastly outnumbered by 300 Muslims to 1,000 of, pa- of the pagans there in Saudi Arabia. And they won a decisive victory revealing that Allah was prospering their cause. And that battle serves as an inspiration for jihad fighters today. The Battle of the Trench was also significant among Muhammad's expeditions. Uh, One of the great Islamic uh, biographies by Imam al-Waqidi, written about Muhammad, recounts that Muhammad himself called uh, for the captives of the battle to be brought in batches of a trench. And in one day, he had varying reports of six to 900 men beheaded. Uh, His soldiers then threw their headless bodies into a trench. It's found in Sahih al-Bukhari, it's found in Ibn Ishaq in Hisham, and you can find it in translation, Guillaume, 1955 in Oxford Press. In light of Muhammad's example, the beheadings we have witnessed in, for example, Iraq uh, in modern days, now don't seem to be so random. The terrorist Zarqawi was seeking to literally fulfill the Quran's command in Surah 47, Ayah 4, to quote, cut off the heads and to also emulate Muhammad's example uh, with the beheadings he mandated in Iraq before his own death. Zarqawi was not an insane, I mean, to my understanding, he was not an insane uh, person, but instead was rationally following a clear religious injunction uh, from Islam for his actions. This legacy of jihad was carried on Uh, by those who immediately followed Muhammad in the first hundred years of Islam in Syria, in Iraq, in Iran, were conquered by Muslim soldiers by the tens of thousands. Uh, In fact, uh, jihad was waged all the way from uh, India to France in the first uh, four years, according to Imam al-Waqidi in his book, The Conquest of Syria, which was written in the 8th century. Uh, very close as a, as a as a primary source for the early origins of Islam, Imam Al- al-Waqidi says that there was some uh, within the first four years. Uh, we counted up there were some 333,000 Christians and others that were killed up in Syria, and then within 10 years, under Abu Bakr and Omar, those first caliphs after Muhammad commissions them up into the conquest of Syria. Within the first 10 years, they killed uh, 1 million. Uh, Christians and others uh, in the conquest that spread all the way to India and eventually into the 1040 window. So jihad was waged in in many ways. Uh, uh, Five great Christian capitals were conquered by the Muslims in those first hundred years. Within those first hundred years, 50% of global Christianity came under Islamic rule. In fact, The entire Eastern Christian world uh, really come under Islamic rule. And you can read a book by Bette Yor called The Decline of Eastern Christianity Under Islam, and it actually tells you uh, that story. Uh, Not a Christian author, but a a historian. Now, in these battles, uh, Muslims slayed Christians and besieged cities. Sometimes we would read about uh, as many as 50,000 women and children being taken as slaves and concubines and marched back to Saudi Arabia. And if Charles Martel had not stu- stood firm and won the Battle of Tours in the eighth century outside the gates of Vienna, Europe would likely be an Islamic uh, nation today. A scholar by the name of Fergosi observed that Islam has always preached war. Its founders and its heroes were warriors. The sword is the key to heaven and hell, he says, Muhammad told his followers. Esteemed missionary to Muslims, Dr. Don McCurry, concludes that regarding violence in Islam, what makes Islam unique is that it has institutionalized and even blessed this propensity to violence in the form of jihad. Violent acts committed in the name of Allah, it was Muhammad who incorporated it as a religious duty in Islam. In order to be a consistent Muslim, one should be a militant one. That is the nature of Islam." Quote. Since Muhammad himself was a man who propagated a tremendous amount of violence, it's not surprising that the Muslim faithful, the radical Muslims we call them today, uh, in the first century they were just called Muslims, there's no such thing as radical Muslims, uh, would follow his example. Today in Pakistan, there are nearly 3 million students that study in the country's many madrasas. Uh, They're trained to follow Muhammad's example. Uh, A third of these uh, religious schools provide military training in the schools. One Muslim scholar explained that in the clash of civilizations, religious war will continue until Islam becomes the dominant religion and that the Muslim community will usher in an Islamic world without frontiers. So what all this means is that the war on terrorism actually did not begin in September 2001. Uh, It has been going on since since the inception of Islamic history, going back to the time of 610 AD, if the Islamic uh, uh, history is correct. We've had uh, a a rest from much of, uh, sorry, 622 AD, (laughs) when it begins the Hijrah. Uh, but we've had uh, violence for, for several centuries uh, in the West, but the reality of this violence has escalated, especially in the last 30 years. In Africa, under such Islamists as Usman Donfodio in Nigeria, a radical jihadist, or uh, Turabi who is in Sudan, or Omar Bashir, who is the uh, leader of Sudan, and so on, Al-Qaeda, in the East, in those Africa and Asia nations, they've been, the church has been devastated uh, by, in some of these areas with the interaction with Islam. So they've experienced uh, the, the challenge of living with an intimidating Islam on a daily basis. One author states that most of the terrorism in the contemporary world has taken place in the Muslim world or is launched by Islamist groups against people of other creeds and nationalities. Islamic terrorism against Americans has been consistent over the last 20 years. In all, 800 uh, persons have lost their lives in the course of attacks by militant Muslims on Americans before September 2001. So all beliefs have consequences. And the violent history of Islam provides the ideological and foundation for radical Muslims and their activities. Now, remember that we're not talking about the majority of nominal Muslim believers, many of whom are your neighbors that you'll meet uh, in evangelizing and so on. But we're talking about those Muslims who are radical, meaning to go back to the root or the foundation of their faith in their Islamic faith, and those who revert to terror to fulfill a religious obligation. These radicals make up roughly 15% of Muslims worldwide, uh, or equal to 300 million radical Muslims that hold that ideology and and or are participating in that radical agenda, or For example, to picture that in your mind, the entire population of the United States would be radical Muslims transnationally. So how do Muslims become radical? Uh, Clearly, no one is born a radical Muslim. Uh, Radical Muslims are created through indoctrination and discipleship by other radicals that are discipling their own. We should be discipling our own in Christ. (laughs) But Osama bin Laden, uh, for example, in his organization Al Qaeda, has trained over 25 to 50,000 fighters in his organization since 1987. Another prominent Islamic militant group are the Mujahideen uh, from 1984 to 1987. The Afghan Service Bureau of the Pakistani ISI trained over 80,000 Mujahideen fighters. Uh, these are warriors. Uh, Writings by modern-day Muslims, uh, radicals like Osama bin Laden, greatly influence these young Muslim recruits to come and train. So the first step of radicalization is recruitment. Listen to what some of the greatest radical Muslim recruiters of this generation have communicated to their faithful followers. Abdul Azam played an important historical role as the precursor and mentor of contemporary jihadism. He was Osama bin Laden's mentor, and he was a university professor in Saudi Arabia. (laughs) He he had been a a strong uh, advocate of militant and global jihad. He wrote, quote, in the rifle alone, no negotiations, no conferences, and no dialogues. Jihad will remain an individual obligation until all other lands that were Muslim are returned to us so that Islam may reign again. Before us lie Palestine, Bahra, Lebanon, Chad, Eritrea, Somalia, and the Philippines," end quote. In a manual published by Al-Qaeda, the terrorist organization founded and run by the deceased Osama bin Laden, we can read what their understanding of confrontation with the West means. Quote, the confrontation that we are calling for with the apostate regimes does not know Socratic debates. Platonic ideals, nor Aristotelian diplomacy, but it knows the dialogue of bullets, the ideals of assassination, bombing, and destruction of the diplomacy of the cannon and machine gun. Islamic governments have never and will never be established through peaceful solutions and cooperative councils. They are established as they always have been, by pen and by gun, by word and bullet, by tongue and teeth, end quote. So the first steps in radicalization is recruitment. The second step is indoctrination. So they must be recruited and indoctrinated to to become radical. The Muslim thinkers inspire disillusioned Muslims to fight and then convert a West that is in slow demise. Strangely, as evangelical Christians, we may not disagree with many and many observations that they're making. Radical Muslims uh, see what they claim to be the debauchery of the West and see uh, materialism, sexual promiscuity, drunkenness, and drug use are being exported throughout Western media, uh, uh, entertainment, all these kinds of things. This is aggravated by what Muslims declare are the imperialistic policies of Western governments in their nations Many Muslims see that they are preserving Allah's law, his sharia, in the world by fighting the West. One scholar observes, Muslim leaders claim that Westerners want to transform the entire world into an entertainment house where they are free to perpetuate their evil deeds. Furthermore, Western leaders are Satan-inspired, out to create havoc everywhere, especially uh, among Muslim states like Iraq in Algeria, in Afghanistan. So we as Christians can agree that Western excesses are destroying the underpinnings of our culture. But their cure in Islam is just as bad as the disease. You cannot overcome evil with evil, but evil with good. First Thessalonians five fifteen. Though many Muslim grievances are, are legitimate, the West is by no means to be blamed for the terrorist attacks. A leading Christian scholar, Peter Riddell, has written that the, quote, the roots of radical Muslims anger against the West is not only due to necessarily to Western materialism or 19th century colonialism or even American imperialism, but that Islam through its history has contained within itself a deep and powerful channel of divinely ordained violence legitimized by certain passages within the Quran, and exemplified by the prophet Muhammad himself. End quote. So this process of indoctrination of these young recruits is not only rhetoric against the West, but appealing to the orthodox teachings of their holy books, the Quran. Among those who do wage jihad, they look to their own faith teachings to not only ideologically justify their actions but to find inspiration for terrorist activities. They follow the example of uh, their prophet Muhammad. To them, Muhammad is deemed the perfect example of a faithful life for all humanity, for all time. Just as Christians look to Christ as their model, how we should live, the radical Muslims look to Muhammad as their model Uh, So these radical Muslims read and interpret their scriptures the same way evangelical or fundamentalist Christians do, literally. They are just like us. They read their traditions just like we do, just like I do. So they look to these sources of their faith, their scripture, and the example of their prophet for their authority, the same place that we do to holy scripture. But theirs is the Quran, which is a false book. Now, perhaps the most radicalized of these Muslims are the suicide bombers. For the last many years, we have uh, heard almost nightly news of young men who strapping bombs on their bodies, walking through discotheques and weddings in Israel uh, with, the s- with the sole intention of blowing themselves up. Or in Iraq, we learned of suicide bombers driving cars into crowds detonating the vehicle in order to amass the greatest collateral damage. Are all of these people insane, or are they rational actors, moving and doing according to their free will? Let's take an inside look at the mind of a suicide bomber. Our understanding starts with the concept of martyrdom in Islam. What is this concept of martyrdom in Islam? Well, according to Orthodox Islam, fighting is not only incumbent upon the believer, but there's a developed theology in veneration of martyrdom. But this is not martyrdom as the Bible teaches, standing for your faith at the cost of death. Rather, it's dying while attempting to kill others in the battle or in jihad. In Islam, martyrdom is the only sure way, the only way, the only way a Muslim can enter paradise. Entrance into heaven or uh, paradise is not assured for Muslims here on earth. On the day of judgment, Allah will weigh one's good deeds and his bad deeds on a scale, using a set of scales according to the various Quranic verses uh, found in Surah 23, Ayah 102 or, to 103, or Surah 101 to uh, verses 6 through 11, Ayah 6 through 11. One's destiny depends on which side of the scale is heavier, with the final decision left to a capricious Allah and his will alone. So even if it's weighed out, uh, Allah can still send you to hell if he decides to. However, Muslim warriors are exempt from the day of judgment and gain immediate entrance into paradise if they're killed during a jihad. You can see verses on jihad and martyrdom found in Surah 47, Ayah 4-6. through Now, there's an ongoing debate within the Islamic community as to whether suicide bombers <coughs> for the sake of, uh, of jihad is permissible and acceptable as martyrdom. However, those who do kill themselves for their faith have been clearly taught to do so by contemporary leaders. For example, a leader of Hamas, uh, the Palestinian group, uh, said, quote, our love for death is greater than our love for life. Hamas, of course, has commissioned many suicide bombers into civilian areas of Israel. Also, after the bombings of U.S. Marines, the battalion headquarters in Lebanon, Sheikh Mohammed Yazbek, speaking at a rally in nearby Baalbek said, let America, Israel, and the world know that we have a lust for martyrdom and our motto is being translated into reality, end quote. The Christian Science Monitor reported on March 5, 2004, that 36% of 12-year-old boys in Gaza, an Arab settlement in Israel, believed that the best thing in life was to die as a martyr. So where do they learn about martyrdom? Well, some some of these go to uh, what are called paradise summer camps. Uh, The BBC television shows uh, footage of an Islamic jihad summer camp where young Palestinian boys uh, were shown pictures of suicide bombers and were being given military training. One camp counselor shared with a BBC reporter that, quote, we're teaching that the children, that suicide bombing is the only thing that makes the Israeli people very frightened. And furthermore, we are teaching them that we have the right to do it. We are teaching them that after the suicide attacks, the man who makes it goes to the highest state in paradise. Thus, suicide bombing in the contemporary jihadist mind is rooted in the orthodox Islamic ideology and in contemporary Islam. The motivation to commit suicide or martyr oneself is not solely religiously motivated. There's also a carnal motivation for a jihadist willing to martyr. According to the Quran, a martyr who dies in jihad will immediately enter paradise. And there they receive these, what are called huris or beautiful, large-eyed perpetual virgins who will be their constant companions throughout eternity some 70 or 73 of them and so on also they will walk among rivers of wine being dressed in silk gowns and seated on majestic thrones a martyr's paradise is apparently so overwhelming that the martyrs would be willing to return to earth and die again and die again and die again it says it repeats itself three times in the traditions just to be able to be ushered back into an immediate experience uh, in its initial majesty. Strangely what they're allowed to do in paradise is forbidden for them to do here on the earth. Muslims are not to have multiple sexual partners outside of marriage or even taste wine and yet their heaven beholds all that is sinful for them on the earth. It's a very different heaven than ours, where no carnal pleasures await us in that sense. Rather, for us in heaven, what we find is we behold the God who walks and talks with us in a garden that we get to receive our creator and to understand God as he is and to be with him as we're eagerly to be with him there. So those who die as martyrs, will often leave letters or videos behind explaining that they are sound mind. They are rationally making a decision to die as martyrs, and that they are acting in submission to a law. Sometimes they'll quote the very traditions and verses I mentioned earlier about martyrdom as the hope that lies before them. Now, there's no particular verses or uh, particular traditions that are a majority over others that they emphasize. There are hundreds of hadiths and hundreds of traditions. And likewise, I mentioned already the many uh, verses, the 149 verses that are in the Quran, that justify the jihad for them from many different perspectives. And this is replete and throughout ubiquitous in their traditions. Also, these suicide bombers leave behind families. However, these family members and even parents rejoice with pride in their son's actions. I've seen videos of a mother whose son committed a suicide bombing, and she's rejoicing proudly, holding his picture in her arms, approving of his violent act. Further, these families are given uh, financial incentives and grants by Muslim terrorist organizations as a reward for their son or their husband's so-called sacrifice. The Palestinian Authority, in fact, signed a new law to support the families of suicide bombers. So you can see, how a young man, perhaps in dire straits from a poor family in a war-torn area, would be willing to martyr himself for the hope of what awaits him on the other side of the explosion. And also, he would not know, uh, he would know that his family would be financially cared for in the aftermath. Truly, in looking at the suicide bomber's mind, the individual or community that participates in the actions finds itself between two blissful outcomes Uh, either victory or triumph, or martyrdom in paradise. So once again, Muhammad's 7th century ideas have modern consequences today. So, another current phenomenon besides the suicidal bombings are the apocalyptic sayings of some Islamic world leaders, namely Iran's Ahmadinejad. Now, the majority of Iranian Muslims are nominal, um, peaceful people in, in general, but their president is an orthodox follower of the Shiite sect of Islam. He has made what appears to be outlandish statements. Ahmadinejad said that Israel must be wiped off the map, and on May 8, 2006, the Iranian president sent a letter to President Bush calling the U.S. to return to monotheism. He was in in essence inviting Bush to become a Muslim. Many in the media saw this uh, move as an opening of the diplomatic doors, which had been closed for a number of years. In their estimation, this was a, a goodwill gesture on Ahmadinejad's part. Yet those familiar with Islamic history spotted an immediate parallel between Ahmadinejad's letter and a religious teaching within Islam. Before Muhammad would go into battle with an opposing tribe or perhaps uh, people, he required that they first be offered offered an opportunity to convert to Islam before being attacked. And we certainly don't know, and, and I'm not saying, that the letter was a prelude to an Iranian jihad. It was perhaps simply dawah or doing evangelism with the American president in the U.S., but it was insightful to find that an influential world leader in the Muslim world holds to a very orthodox teaching of Islam. To better understand his religious beliefs, uh, one must understand that Ahmadinejad is what is called (coughs) a 12-verse Shiite Muslim. Now, there are many sects within Islam, and again, not all Muslims hold to the same belief. 12 or Shiite Muslims uh, believe that a great Islamic religious leader called the 12th Imam, or the Mahdi, will one day return to Earth during the end of times. Many Shiites uh, believe that this Imam who was born in 868 AD is still alive today, and that his life uh, has been miraculously prolonged until his return. They believe, that the Mahdi's return can be hastened by the creation of chaos on the earth. According to Shiite prophecies, an apocalyptic scenario will precede the return of the Mahdi. And some world leaders have speculated that Ahmadinejad's diplomatic defiance in regarding to nuclear arms and proliferation is intended to provoke a war to speed up the Mahdi's return. Now again, this is all you know speculation But I hope we can see why it's important to have an understanding of classical Islam in order to better understand and interpret the current geopolitical environment. And In uh, Dr. David Cook's course, in later later, uh, courses, uh, he teaches a course on understanding jihad, martyrdom in Islam, Muslim apocalyptic, and Shiism. And he can address these issues in a more thorough fashion. Now we may wonder if all Muslims are not radical, why more moderate Muslims are not speaking out against the radical acts of their brothers? Well, one reason is that many so-called moderates are equivalent to nominal Christians. Uh, Again, nominal Christians are people who are not involved in the Great Commission, making disciples, going into all the world or supporting those who are finishing the commission that Jesus said to do in throughout all the earth. They're not participating in their own faith, and seeing the kingdom of God extended throughout the world. They just uh, do what they do without obeying that. Now, the Muslims, uh, in the sense of the nominal Muslims have not read their scriptures, and so they do not understand the justification for these violent acts. They are unaware of them, perhaps. Also, these Muslim, uh, Muslims are not seeking to make public political statements because like nominal Christians, they tend to be less activist, activistic and more apathetic. But there are those moderates who are, are intellectuals and who are speaking out. Liberal or moderate uh, Muslims tend to define jihad as an inward striving against the lust of the flesh towards faithfulness. This is often called the greater jihad because a Muslim must do it every day, and they see it superior to the lesser jihad which is uh, fighting. Scholars disagree with this position and hold that true jihad is, as we've seen, fighting and following the example of Muhammad. Radical Muslims will take the literal approach, defining jihad as the orthodox teachings do, and then they will declare these less literate, literalist, moderate Muslims to not be true Muslims. The moderates are mostly overwhelmed by the violence of the radicals, and frankly, the radicals seem to make a better case for following the teachings of Muhammad than the moderates do, and so they have a stronger argument for their version of Islam in the eyes of many international Muslim uh, communities. But there's another dynamic as well. Recall the four stages of jihad in Muhammad's career. Some Christian apologists to Muslims agree that some who appear moderate may have radical leanings but are not expressing it because they are in stage one. Muslims in Western nations don't have political clout like Muhammad's earlier career in Mecca, hence offensive or defensive fighting is not permitted until a later time, when Islam becomes more prominent in a society and so on. One uh, apologist, Indian apologist, has said that there is a very thin line between moderate and radical Islam. Even if a Muslim is, quote, a Sufi or mystical Muslim, it's a very short shift in, for example, Northern Africa or throughout the world in Asia where Sufism is popular. It's a very short shift from this kind of peaceful Islam back to the example of Muhammad and the radicalization process begins. So in pulling back the veil on radical Islam, one runs the risk of invoking fear. But I don't believe that, that fear should be an evangelical response at all. I am not uh, scared of Islam, even though there may be those Muslims who uh, want to invoke fear upon me. For example, in the Quran, <laughs> Muslims are taught in Surah 8, ayah 57 through 60, it says, quote, strike fear or terror into the heart of the infidels, end quote. So deeply interwoven within the religion is a pervasive spirit of fear. The infidels are, uh, are uh, non-Muslims, uh, pagans, uh, sometimes Jews and Christians, depending upon how they call it, or all non-Muslims. Uh, radical Muslims are taught that you will fear them, so they have great boldness in executing their mission, and as a result are making great evangelistic strides. However, we're told through the scriptures that we need not be afraid. We need not have fear because Christ has overcome the world. But do you believe that? Do you believe in what Jesus has to say? That we, perfect love drives out fear. We're to have an even greater boldness in our witness because God has given us, has not given us a spirit of fear, but has given us a, a, one of love and power and a sound mind. But I tell you three reasons why people are afraid of Islam. First, it's because Christians have not connected with a powerful God, a powerful living God. Uh, A bomb can kill lives, but only the gospel gives eternal life. Our message is far more powerful than the weapons of mass destruction, and so is the eternal impact of our witness. But what is the church's witness? Muslims pray five times a day. uh, Very few perhaps pray once a day. If one is filled with the Holy Spirit, they have the power of God within them. When convinced of that power, there is no fear. The church will be as Stephen before his persecutors, proclaiming the gospel before being stoned to death. Some of my closest friends are missionaries to Muslims. One has been beaten several times, almost killed. I've had people uh, killed and others that we know. Uh, They've had been taken to the highest courts and wrongly accused and the persecution continues on and on if you read the book of acts it's just like the life of paul they stand firm they do not allow fear to strike terror in their hearts because the gospel is greater uh, there, and there uh than anything that the muslims can give them in that sense any kind of fear and, no, and nominal or radical muslims they need to hear the gospel Nominal Christianity will not win over any radical faith at all, especially radical Islam. Secondly, some Christians fear Islam because they fear persecution. But what does the Lord Jesus Christ say about persecution? Some of you, they will persecute, and some of you will be killed. Uh, a Christian will not pick up their cross and obedience to following Christ if they fear persecution. Paul says to live a godly life in Christ means to suffer in 2 Timothy 312. And a time will come, the scriptures say, when they will kill you and think they're giving offerings to God. That's Islam. So the church needs not to fear persecution because she holds a future hope in eternal life, which is far more glorious than which is here on the earth. And the reason we are here, the reason we have life and blood and breath is to finish the great commission on the earth that's the whole thing for a billion billion years you get rewarded for what you do in this life and how you invest your 20 30 40 60 70 80 years so don't waste it thirdly people in the church are afraid because they don't know what they believe if they met a muslim they would not know what to say to them to share the gospel with them or how to share their faith they would not address the the theological issues how many have heard of pastors training their congregation, their churches to effectively and lovingly evangelize the Muslims? Well, there's not many. The, the pastors have just never, never received the training throughout the world. And we need to admit that and, and to bring that training into the context of the church so we can finish the Great Commission. And yet there are 1.5 billion Muslims globally, and it's the fastest growing religion in the world. Just like Muhammad's ideas had consequences the church's ideas today have consequences as well we fear what we do not know and if the church learns about islam and muslims i found that she will have a deep-seated confidence not fear because they understand exactly what they believe and they have compassion on them because they can see what it is they're locked in they see so much hope in the love of the gospel and in christ again as i mentioned when I began, my hope is to expose Islam and to take away its mystery so that it no longer is a thing to be feared by us Christians, but it becomes rather another false ideology which we as Christians can confidently address. Osama bin Laden, as we have seen, has become the foremost radical ideologue of radical Islam and the faith, and with uh, zeal, Before his death, he had written a letter to the United States in post 9-11. He says this, You are a nation that permits acts of immorality, and you consider them to be pillars of personal freedom. You are a nation that exploits women like consumer products or advertising tools calling upon customers to purchase them. You then rant that you support the liberation of women. You are a nation that practices the trade of sex in all its forms, directly and indirectly, a giant corporation and establishments and established on this under the name of art or entertainment and freedom. The thing we call you to is to stop your oppression and lies, the immorality and debauchery that has spread among you. If only that was the only thing that Osama bin Laden said. Doesn't sound bad, but he has called he has also called out to violent attacks against Americans worldwide. So how ironic that that radical Muslims are trying to solve the issues of, issues of immorality in the West with bombs because we as Christians have neglected to respond to the spiritual depravity of our culture and Muslim nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We as Christians must put aside our fear and complacency and respond to the challenge of Islam with equal boldness and love and witness. Let's pray. Father, we repent. Father, of sex and power and materialism, all the things that have been influential, the idols of our culture, the strongholds, within the heads and minds of Christians throughout the world. Father, we repent and turn towards you and ask Holy Spirit that you lead us and guide us in holiness of truth to be the witness that we need to be to the Muslim world, we pray, and ask that we could obey and fulfill. You said you would be with us. Help us in the name of Jesus. Amen.